0: This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Tim Lee is the author of Full Stack Economics, a substack newsletter about the economy. He's also the primary caregiver to his three children. His wife works full-time as an OBGYN, and Tim has done what he calls leaning out, scaling back the intensity of his professional career so he has more time to raise his children and maintain the home. This is a professional story you see all the time for mothers, but it's a lot less common for fathers. And a question Tim has been discussing in his newsletter is, why? Could more husbands be doing this? And how would our society look different if they did? So let's talk about that. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: So first, uh, tell us about your family life.
1: Sure. So I have three kids. They are six, four, and one. And my wife is a doctor. She delivers babies. So that's a very demanding career. Um, She is working at the hospital nights about one night a week delivering babies. Um, And so those nights, obviously, I need to be home taking care of the kids. And then, you know, she's got patients scheduled and stuff. So school pickups and drop offs are on me. Uh, My sister does live with us. She does help with the school pickups. So I'm able to work like close to full time. But it's very useful when you have young kids to have somebody who's on call if the kid's sick, if there's a doctor's appointment and stuff. That's almost always I'm, I'm the one who kind of picks up that slack.
0: You're working about full time, but you're working from home on a pretty flexible schedule, right?
1: Yeah, I probably get forty hours a week. You know, sometimes I, I work nights, but there's you know after the kids go to bed, I put in a few hours. But other days, I don't work at all because the kid's sick or something like that. Um, and so on average, it's probably thirty to forty hours a week, but it's not a nine to five schedule necessarily.
0: And then you mentioned that your sister lives with you. Do you have professional help as well? Is there anyone that you're paying to come in to watch the kids or, or clean the house? Or
1: My two older kids um, are in school. Um, we mm-hmm. have pre-K right. three here, so the, the four-year-old is in school, and we, we have a one-year-old that does have a nanny um, mm-hmm. during the day. Okay. So how, how has your wife felt about this arrangement? She's been very happy with it. You'll see a lot of claims in the media that this causes tension or you know, resentment. Um, we haven't had any of that. My wife likes her job. She's good at her job. And she just, I think, appreciates being able to kind of focus on her career and uh, not have to worry too much about kind of what happens uh, here at home when, when she needs to be doing her job. And then you spoke with about 20 men who
0: have or used to have similar arrangements to this in their households. And when we say leaning out, in most cases, you're not talking about men leaving the workforce. You're talking about them reducing the intensity of their work very often, increasing the flexibility, maybe working from home, basically changes that allow them to do a lot more childcare even while staying in the workforce. Although some of the men you spoke with have gone all the way, our stay-at-home dads, parenting full-time. In what sense did you get talking with them about what a typical experience is like with having a, a husband who's a primary caregiver?
1: I mean, it's really there really is no typical experience. I would say the majority of the the discussions I had, um, the men were happy. It's hard to know for sure because obviously men who are not happy might be less likely or maybe more likely to want to talk to me. But there's a range. So there there are several men that were full stay-at-home dads where they didn't have a job or they had a part-time job and were spending the majority of the time. Doing childcare. There were a fair number who are kind of like me, where they have a job, but they managed to, they're self employed or they have a kind of flexible job or something like that where they're able to kind of be the primary caregiver. Um, And then there were some who did that for a while and didn't like it. Um, I had a couple who did that in the past and um, ended up divorced. So there are, you know, there's a range of um, experiences that people have had. Yeah, you mentioned that the
0: two couples that you spoke with where they ended up getting divorced, there's this idea that couples where the wife out the husband have a higher divorce rate uh, than married couples do generally. And wh- one thing you say in the piece is that used to be true, but it doesn't seem to be true anymore.
1: Yeah. So I, I cited a study from, I think, 2016 that looked at couples that were married in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, And for the 70s and 80s, the highest divorce rates were couples where the wife had like 60 to 90% of the income. For the couples in the 90s, that's not true. It was pretty flat across the board. And actually, the lowest divorce rate was the families where the wife made 80 to 100% of the household income. So so that seems to be a, a sign that there's changing attitudes over time. This sort of data tends to be pretty lagged because you know, you don't know until years later, like, which couples are going to end a divorce. So we don't yet know, like, millennials. Like- yeah,
0: it's surprisingly hard to measure the divorce rate. It seems like something that should be straightforward. But because of this, because a marriage is so long, it's sort of difficult to forecast, you know, some marriages that haven't ended in divorce, it's just because they haven't ended in divorce yet. That's right. Um, and that's also, the divorce rate is significantly lower than 50%. People throw this idea around that half of marriages end in divorce, and that's not true. But anyway, as, as an aside, yeah. but it, it, it seems like there's not a strong relationship between this income rate. Show and the divorce rate.
1: That's right. So for yeah, so for baby boomers there did seem to be a relationship, but for Gen Xers, roughly speaking, there were not. And my guess would be also for millennials, there would be not this relationship.
0: Cause when I think about why you don't see more arrangements like this where you have a, a wife who's the primary earner working more hours and, and earning a significant majority of the, the income in the household. One of the assumptions I have, and you know, I have this assumption as a gay man looking at, looking at heterosexuals from the outside, it seems to me like both men and women tend to have complexes about this, that men feel uncomfortable with the idea of not being the primary breadwinner in their household and that most women don't want to marry a man or, or be married to a man who's going to make less money than they do. Am I wrong in that understanding? Is that I mean, isn't that a significant barrier to a greater adoption of this uh, uh, household model that you're that you're advocating?
1: Uh it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I didn't look at like survey data on this specifically. And I think part of the tricky thing is what people say they want and what they actually want might be different. Right. Um, so there might be, you know, feminist women, self-described feminist women who will tell you they're not worried about this. But then if you look at the, who they actually date, maybe they tend to pick people with higher incomes. Um, so yeah, I don't have a clear sense for um, kind of what the distribution of preferences are. And I will say in my case, This is actually something you saw with the different men I talked to. In my case, we didn't have a kind of agreement ahead of time that, oh, this is I'm going to be the the homemaker and she's Mm going to be the breadwinner. Um, It was more just uh, as we had kids and the kind of pressures of needing more time and the financial pressures came up. um, It just made logical sense that her her income was like three times as much as mine. If somebody was going to cut back their hours, it was going to be me. And I was, I guess, if I'm unusual, it's just that I was okay with that. It didn't bother me overly much. But I, I think that's probably the more common case where, you know, modern, uh, especially kind of well-educated couples tend to be pretty egalitarian in their attitudes. I, I talked to a few where it was very clear, you know, at the time they got married that, that the wife was had more earning potential and more ambition than the husband. So that does happen. But more often, I think it's something where it just kind of happens when circumstances change.
0: I mean, you're you're a journalist and she's a physician. It, it it must have been foreseeable earlier in your lives that her income was likely to be higher than yours. In oh, any for
1: case. sure. Yeah. No, I, that part was foreseeable. I guess we weren't thinking super hard about the amount of time it takes to raise kids. I mean, it, it's not like if you'd asked me in the abstract, like, does it take a lot of work to raise kids? I would have obviously said, you know, people say yes, it does, but but it's just not. I don't think most people. Just how much work it is, I think, is not obvious to people even who would say in the abstract they understand that.
0: Well, I mean, it's also – it's notable to me you have, you have three children because a lot of the professional couples that we're usually talking about when we have this conversation. This is a conversation that tends to to focus on the idea of a couple where, where both have at least a bachelor's degree and they really have careers rather than jobs. Couples like that that I see in my personal life, I rarely see them with more than two children, and in part because it seems like they're struggling to keep their heads above water both financially and logistically as they manage two children. And now some of that has to do with changes in parenting norms over the decades. One odd thing about, you know, women continue to do a majority of the parenting work in households, even though men spend much more time parenting than they did several decades ago, because women also spend much more time parenting. The, the total amount of labor effort that gets put into a child seems to have gone up a lot. I don't know. I don't know that there are returns on that. But one thing about having a spouse who leans out is that presumably that makes it Less uh, logistically daunting, the idea that you might have a third or even a fourth child—is that something that, that you see with some of these some of these families that this is what makes it feasible to have a, a five or a six person family?
1: Oh yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely true. If you'd asked me five or ten years ago how many kids I wanted to have, I think three might, might might've been a number I would have said. Um, but definitely after we had the second child and I was kind of leaning out, um, the fact that it was working pretty well, um, that we weren't too stressed out, I think definitely made it more likely that we would in fact go ahead and have that third child. And definitely I've, I've have, um, friends who are in kind of more egalitarian marriages where, uh, they have one or two kids and they're like, oh my God, it's just so, you know, so challenging. And, you know, are probably less likely to have that second or third kid because of that. Um, so I think that's actually absolutely true. And, and also when I talk to um, families where the, the dad is like an actual like stay at home dad full time, mm-hmm. they talk about how it, it makes their lives much easier and they see their their peers with two jobs really struggling because uh, beyond the child care, you know, the dad can make dinner. I mean, all the things that traditionally people said were good about having a stay at home mom, like all those benefits exist if you have a stay at home dad as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're sort of talking about two related but pretty different models here. One is one is like what you're doing, where you're, you're still working a full-time job, even though it's very flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still, I mean, you, you, you still have an, a nanny for the one-year-old. It's still, you're obviously spending more of your time on these matters than your wife is, but you also both have both feet planted in the professional world. Right. And then you also have some of the men you spoke with who really are, they're not working at all. And I assume in most cases, they do not have full-time household help at home, right? Because that's the men that they, they're doing that in the, yes. way, in the way a stay-at-home mother would. For some people, w- once you leave the
1: workforce like that, I assume it's a lot harder to get back in, right? Yes. Most of the stay-at-home dads I talked to had young kids still. And so it's hard to say how they'll feel in 10 or 20 years. But I would say there were a couple different categories. There were some men who just did not consider themselves ambitious. Um, you know, they had, often these were like IT workers. Um, I talked to a couple people who are IT workers who just, they liked their jobs fine, but didn't feel the need to like climb the corporate ladder and uh, we're just perfectly happy not working. Um, that's one category. There also were some some um, fathers who took two or three or four years out of the job market. There were a couple, I think, that planned to take a couple years and then the pandemic hit and they ended up being you know, three or four years because of that. Um, and those um, some of those dads really have struggled because it's absolutely true. If, if you are in a professional job, um, it becomes much more difficult if you're you have a three or four year gap in your resume. Employers it seem to be much more uh, skeptical about hiring you back. And so I think that is something people should think hard about. I think the case for Cutting back hours like I have is pretty strong, and I think that'll work well for many people. Um, but yeah, if you're thinking about really quitting for a year or more, um, you should think hard about like how you'll feel if you try to get back in the job market You know, when your kid goes to preschool and you're not able to. It's interesting because a lot of the difficulties that
0: the, the men you spoke with describe here are difficulties that are very familiar if you hear women talk about the experience of leaving the labor force in order to be a parent or, or even just pulling back from the labor force even if they don't leave entirely. Uh, first of all, you, you talk about some research about the salary penalty faced by women with NBAs, and that there's a gender pay gap right when they come out of business school, but mostly the widening gap that arises arises only for women with children. Um, that basically they reduce their intensity in the labor force and their gender gap widens as they get older. Women who don't have children, their gender gap relative to men with with MBAs does not widen. And so that I think is – that that's a reflection of a pretty large economic penalty for making the decision that you describe here. Is there – I mean obviously that's going to make it off-putting for men. It makes it off-putting for a lot of women as well. Is there a way to address that, to change that factor so that it is a more viable option for more people?
1: So this is drawing on research by Claudia Golden, who's an economist. I I read a book of hers that's really excellent. I encourage people to read it if they're interested in this. And yeah, she surveyed um, women who graduated from Chicago Business School in the 90s and early 2000s and uh, looked at their pay over time, their husband's pay over time their work hours. And like you said, what she found was that the women who did not have children um, did not see a widening pay gap, the women who did. And the widening of the pay gap was mostly explained by the fact that women tended to cut back their work hours. Um, and this makes sense if you think about the kind of jobs that MBAs have. Um, the highest paying jobs are the jobs we, where you are kind of leading some kind of investment project or a management job or something like that where part of what you're being paid for is to be available 24/7 you know if there's some uh, you know emergency in your company or some deal that's happening where you have to work around the clock to finish it. People who are able to be available all the time are just going to be more successful in their careers. They're going to move up in the ranks. And that can be very large. It can be, you can make two or three times more after a decade of work than if you are at the same company, but have one of these kind of supporting roles where you work 40 hours a week, but you have your nights and weekends off. And so, yeah, what you see is that some people with MBAs, uh, most, almost all the men go for those more ambitious jobs. A significant fraction of the women um, go for the less ambitious jobs. And over time, that creates, Golden calls these greedy jobs, the jobs where you get more if you are able to commit to working hard. Those are called greedy jobs. And the greedy jobs can pay a lot more. Right. It's, it's not
0: just that you make more money because you work more hours. You actually make more money per hour yes.
1: because of your ability to do this job that is
0: going to demand so many hours.
1: Yes. And it can kind of snowball where you get promotions. And so at first you're making a little more per hour, but you know, 10 or 20 years down the road, maybe you're the CEO and you're making millions of dollars. Um, so that kind of dynamic exists in a bunch of kind of elite professions in medicine, in law, in business, um, in journalism to a lesser extent. And so to... Um, spouses who are both in those kind of professions, um, there can be a big, I mean, you can look at it both ways. You can say it's a penalty for equality, but you can also say there's a big bonus if you're willing to specialize where, um, I, I don't necessarily, I, th- I think looking at a penalty is maybe a, mis- a mistake because like, I think it works out very well for, you know, my family, like my wife makes a lot of money and I don't have to worry about it. And I don't really feel I'm being penalized. I feel like, you know, I kind of have a, a, a pretty low stress life because, my wife is able to make a lot of money and support the family.
0: Yeah, because I mean, when people talk about those sorts of jobs, they talk about concerns about them both from, from a gender equality perspective, that more men have life structures that make it feasible for them to do those jobs than women. But then there are also other critiques of those sorts of jobs that basically like, is that the right way to live? Do we want people to have that level of work stress? Should we have a cultural and economic change so those jobs are simply less greedy? And some of that stuff is a choice made in the culture of an industry, whether you read. Really really need this report to be turned around in the next Few hours, or can that wait until Monday kind of thing? You have differences across countries where people take a lot more vacation time in Europe than in the US. So one societal change we could have is we could have fewer greedy jobs. And maybe that would, there would be a hit to GDP or to innovation or productivity growth or something. I don't know how severe that hit would be. But to some extent, that's that's a choice. I think you you sort of make a case for greedy jobs here, though, right? That you your your view is that we need these sorts of jobs in the economy, and therefore we need to create structures such that it's possible for both women and men to do those jobs.
1: What leads you to that conclusion? Yeah. So I mean, I think that th- there are certainly going to be cases where you can make jobs less greedy. So the example Golden talks about is pharmacy it used to be an industry where you had these ind- independent self-employed pharmacists who had to work long hours because they were like small business owners. And we shifted to places like CVS employing most pharmacists and they they can have shift work. And so now pharmacy is a more family friendly kind of industry. But I don't think the professions we're talking about, I don't think it's that plausible that that'll, you know, that it'll end up like that. I mean, think about like a surgeon, for example, there's data that the more surgeries you do, the better you are at surgery. And so if you have a choice between, you know, having a surgeon who works, 30 hours a week or having a surgeon that works 60 hours a week, you want the one that works 60 hours a week. Um, and similarly, if you think about it, I think this especially works at higher level of management. Um, if you're running a Fortune 500 company, every hour you put in the job is going to make a big difference in the success of the company. I mean, any if one of your subordinates has a problem that they want to solve, like the more time you have to kind of put out fires and shift the direction of the company, the more successful the company is. Um, and so I think there are large societal benefits to having a certain number of people who are really putting in these extra hours really like, improving their skills and making sure that kind of the trains run on time. And so I don't think it's so much that that I'm not sure society really has a choice. Like, I think that um, as long as society is somewhat meritocratic, like the people who put in the hours are just going to be better at certain jobs. And so if you reward people for performance, that's going to lead to a lot of de facto, greedy jobs, regardless of kind of how you structure the labor market.
0: It strikes me that what enables you to do what you're doing in your household is not so much the number of hours you're working, it's the flexibility of those hours in terms of when you do them and where you do them. Being able to work from home seems like a really key part of having the sort of arrangement that you describe here. We've also just gone through this economic upheaval due to COVID. One of the upshots of that has been that a lot of office jobs have become possible to do remotely, both technologically and there's acceptance of that within the organizations where they're being done. Do you see that as something that can be a driver of social change here that you could get, I, I mean, I guess I was going to say more men, but I, I guess it would make it feasible for more parents, whether they're men or women, to do this sort of arrangement where it's not a, your version of this, where it's not that you're leaving the workforce, where it's not that you're parenting full time, but that you can be on call at a specific moment when parenting is being a greedy job, when it's that, you know, the, your your child needs you at this moment and you have the flexibility to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There there was one guy I talked to who was a part-time IT worker and his schedule is he worked, I think it was like nine to noon, Monday through Friday. And those hours overlapped with times he was doing childcare. And I asked him like, what's up with that? Like, you know, is your employer mad? And he said, well, it's kind of an on-call job. Like I'm not actually working most of that time. Um, And so, yeah, I think there are going to be certain jobs where employers need a certain kind of expertise, but they're willing to be a little bit patient for it to get the right person. And if you're able to work from home, um, that makes it much easier to do that sort of thing. Um, And so I think you're going to see a lot of, um, hopefully a lot of companies being creative about ways to make use of talented people who maybe only want to work 20 hours a week or want to kind of set their own hours to make better use of those people's talents. At a macroeconomic level, the sorts
0: of changes that you're encouraging here, I assume they would tend to be associated with a lower total number of hours worked in the economy, right? In a way, advocating for an arrangement where, on average, a, a married couple with children, the parents in total will spend fewer hours working and more time raising children than is currently the typical arrangement, right?
1: I think probably, yeah.
0: And so that might cause GDP to fall, wouldn't it? I mean, I realize that's that's partly just an artifact of how GDP is measured. The work that one does in one's household, not for compensation, doesn't get counted in GDP, which mm-hmm. is really a measurement error. If you paid someone to come clean your house or watch your children or do those sorts of things, that counts as, as productive economic activity. Right. When you clean your own house, it doesn't count. Right. right. But any, any change that you do that would tend to be negative for GDP, people will worry about it and people also will, won't really know how to look at it and figure out, is this a negative social Change or is there something we're not measuring that we're getting in exchange for what we lost in terms of compensated activity in the economy?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the non measurement of household labor is certainly one way that the statistic could be misleading. But the flip side of that is uh, potentially the the leaning in spouse could be more productive or better at their job. You know, the extra ten hours a week my wife works, maybe that makes her a better surgeon, and so maybe her like error rate is a little lower than it would be otherwise. And and I've talked to her about this. I mean she I think she thinks she's better at her job because she works these long hours and is like doing surgeries regularly. So I think that's a real example. And so similarly if CEOs are working longer hours and so the companies are a little better, you know, rudded, a little just kind of more productive, um, it's not maybe that would show up in kind of more productivity for this corporation. Maybe it would just be better customer service or something. It's like better harder to measure. So I think it's like hard It's hard to know what the overall effect on GDP was, but certainly it could be the measure GDP doesn't go up, but the quality of certain kinds of services improve as a result.
0: Is there something inherently wrong with that kind of inequality in a household of those roles? I mean, because this is like, this goes back to the original feminist critique of the traditional family and household right that you have a man who has the income and has the financial power that is associated with that income and the wife's work is is confined to the household and can be isolating but also does not have obvious transferability into the labor market in a situation where the the marriage is dissolved and so i mean you've taken that arrangement and you've made it so that the genders can be can be swapped but is that i mean is does that put what whoever the, the parenting parent is, whether that's the husband or the wife, does that put that person in an inherently more precarious position?
1: I think it does at the margin. I would distinguish like you did before between the kind of leading out case versus the true stay at home dad case. Um, I think for somebody in my position, I still have a career if for whatever reason, you know, my wife and I were to separate. I think I could ramp up my my professional activity. I wouldn't make as much money as I would have if I'd been working full out for the last 10 years, but I could make a fine income. So I don't feel like there's enough of a disparity there that it creates kind of a power imbalance that I'm worried about. Um, and I also think it's just partly just a personality thing. Like in the 1950s, because it was always the hu- husband that worked and always the wife that was stay at home. Um, I think that kind of amplified the level of inequality because there were kind of s- structural reasons the wife like couldn't get into the workforce. So that's one case where the husband kind of cuts his hours. I think if you have a stay at home dad, that I think does have kind of worst tail risks of if the marriage really goes bad and you really can't find a job, those men could be in a bad situation. And so I think they need to think hard about about what they're doing and if, if that risk is worth it. I, I think it's still, it, it has significant upsides for both partners. The The other thing is, I, I feel like there's a little bit of a, a weird way we look at this, where we always think about it as the person who's working 60 hours a week is getting the benefit. And the person who's has this kind of more comfortable life is, is like making the sacrifice. And certainly there are some like highly ambitious people, the, the kind of people who write books about this topic often, for whom that's true. Like they like ambitious work and they wouldn't like being stay-at-home parents, but um, I think that's actually, it's certainly not universal and maybe not even the norm. And I think there are many people, especially further down the income spectrum, where it's actually reversed and people don't like their jobs that much. And the person, I mean, I think this was the traditional view 50 or 100 years ago. It was the man who was making the sacrifice by going to the coal mine or the factory and working these long, grueling hours so that their wife wouldn't have to and so their wife and kid could benefit. And so I don't think it makes sense to kind of, to look at it all in one direction. Like, every couple, straight couple, the husband and wife will have different priorities and different values. And there'll, there'll just be some couples where it's clear that it works better in one direction than the other and others where they're kind of similar.
0: But but for some couples, the, if they're considering this, the option they really need to be considering is the full-time stay-at-home parent option, right? I mean, because we've sort of implicitly talked about relatively higher income couples, but you have, you have a lot of couples for whom the math just doesn't pencil to have one parent sort of pull back on their work, but still be working and require paid childcare. Like the the most economically sensible thing for some of these couples would be for one of the parents to do full time stay at home parenting, and that might also that might build the the life that they're looking for for parents who really want to devote themselves full time to parenting. Uh, that that creates that option. The problem then is that you have sort of inherently that greater dependence of that parent on the on the working parent.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a risk that you. You take. Um, and it kind of depends on, you know, how, how much you trust your spouse and kind of what, what your priorities are in life. But yes, there absolutely are going to be some people who make that choice and, and end up regretting it later.
0: So as as, as your kids get older, uh, I assume it will be less labor intensive to raise them. And I assume that the question of leaning out will become moot, right? That at, at some point, the demands of uh, of child rearing will reduce and, and both of you would be able to turn more fully toward career at that point. Do you, do you envision... What that looks like for you, the transition out of this?
1: Yeah, so I obviously don't know yet, since I, you know, haven't been there. But you have a one-year-old. Um,
0: you have a while. Yes, yeah, so
1: it'll be a while. So, <laughs> so, but what, what, what parents of older children tell me is there's kind of two peaks of demandingness. So at the very young end, you have the very physical, like all the time, kind of uh, demands of having young children. But then around the teenage years, there's a different set of challenges where you know sometimes teens like run into trouble and need a lot of kind of emotional support or guidance or supervision, that kind of thing. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, people tell me there's kind of two peaks. Um, And so I think there will be a period when my kids are from, you know, five to 12 or so, where I'll have like, like you said, like all the kids will be in school and doing homework. And so I'll have some time. And then there might be a few teenage years where it's kind of turbulent. And then once they go off to college, obviously, I'll have a lot of time. And I am personally not the kind of person who like dreamed of like kicking back and enjoying an easy life. Like I like my job, I would love (laughs) to be working more hours. And so absolutely, as as I'm able to, I, I Am hoping and expecting to kind of ramp back up to working full time or a little more than full time.
0: You originally wrote about this, writing about your own personal experience, and then you went on, as we discussed, to write the the piece where you spoke with a lot of uh, a lot of other fathers. Was there anything you learned in that reporting that surprised you, or or maybe even changed your your own view about how you're how you're arranging your own life?
1: I don't think it affected how I think about my own life, but I, I do think it really underscored how much diversity there is in people's values. I mean, there are really some. There were some men who were like, I didn't like my job that much. I like taking care of my kids. I'm like, yeah, I just think this new situation is great. Um, and there were other ones who really didn't like it, uh, either didn't enjoy you know, spending time with their kids or wanted to get back in the labor market and couldn't. Yeah, you had a quote from one of them that was like, I don't really relate to babies. Yes. I think there's probably <laughs> more men like that than women. But yeah, there's some people who just, you know, maybe they like having, you know, six-year-olds or 12-year-olds or something, but like little kids are not their thing. And so, yeah, I think it's just a very individualized thing. Every, every couple is different and they have to kind of figure out what works for them.
0: Let's leave it there for this week. Tim Lee, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing your, your personal experiences and your reporting on this. Thanks so much. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. Your subscription directly funds this podcast and the newsletter. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Faye. Jennifer Swanick mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back soon.